Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainer writer Jim Hill, and my co-host for this podcast, Mr. Taylor. Well, his musings on the Mission Impossible movies can be found over on the Light the Fuse podcast, and his writings on the industry, you can read those regularly over on The Wrap. Drew and I are recording this week's show on the evening of Thursday, June 1st, which is the night that Sony Pictures Animation's highly anticipated sequel to 2018's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, will be holding its Thursday night preview screenings. And Drew, how can the studios persist in calling these Thursday night screenings? These days... They typically start at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And secondly, they're not really previews of the movie. Previews used to be the things you hold a weekend before the movie came out, maybe two weeks out to build buzz. Right. And it would be attached to another movie or something, right? That's it, exactly. And, but you, you'd buy a ticket to see Con Air, but Jim, you'd get to see Face Off as well. There we you go. There mean? we go. These screenings are done out ahead of the official opening of the movie on Friday to artificially boost the weekend gross or the opening weekend gross. This is sort of the theatrical equivalent of the thing you bring up all the time. When they order 20 episodes of an animated series and then they release a 10-episode first season and then announce, hey, it's renewed for a second season. It's like, no, no, it's not. You always ordered 20 episodes, and so there were going to be two seasons no matter what. So everybody in the industry actually understands what's going on here. And I get why they do it. I was actually pulling numbers earlier today, and Ant-Man of the Wasp Quantum Mania, it's Thursday night preview screenings, they pulled in $17.5 And the film itself made 106 over its opening weekend. So that's 16% of its overall opening weekend box office take. Same thing with Guardians. They did $17 million on their Thursday. That wound up being 14% of, of the opening weekend take. And Little Mermaid, just this past weekend, 10.3 of the uh, $95.5 so again, 10%. I mean, these are not huge numbers, but they're, they're also not insignificant. And, and also in a town where people brag about box office numbers, you know, it's just uh, every dollar counts. But in town, I mean, how do people talk about do they also use the term Thursday night preview screenings or is it just? Yeah, Thursday night preview screenings. It used to be that at least that it was at midnight and that they would it would just be a little bump of maybe a couple of million dollars. But now that Thursday, you're right, is a really big oh, yeah. Yeah. Deal. Not only in terms of adding to the weekend box office, mm -hmm. but, you know, obviously like prognosticating how much is it going to make? If it made mm -hmm. six million on Thursday, what does that look like for the weekend? And yeah. so, wow. yeah, they become really, really important. And you're right. They I think that they've been showing Spider-Verse since like <laughs> 4 p.m. Yeah. out here. So, yeah. so. That's, that's, Nancy and I will finally get to that next week sometime. But OK, anyway, folks, we have lots more news to cover. But before we do that, I want to remind you, news portion of Fine Tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network for a worry-free travel experience every time. Please book online at storybookdestinations.com. On last week's show, we talked about the Elemental Experience, which is currently touring the country as part of Disney's promotional push for Pixar's Elemental. 
Did you see the coverage coming out of Cannes this past Saturday where this Peter Sahn film closed out the festival and got a five-minute long uh, standing ovation? So good for Peter. We love him, Jim. We love that rascally Peter Sohn, and, don't we? And, you know, he looks good in a tuxedo. You know, after all those years at Pixar, he, he's a, in, in, in T-shirts and like, he cleans up nice. Anyway, back to the Elemental Experience, this five-city tour, which, by the way, is sponsored by Fandango, Dolby, and I'm the Chef too. As we mentioned last week, got started the Brookfield Place in, in NYC, then moved to the Yorktown Center in Chicago, Illinois, which is where fine-tuning listener Scott Clay and his family got to experience the elemental experience firsthand. And as Scott described it, it did sound very reminiscent of the Hercules Mega Mall Tour from 97. And I found uh, the initial press release for this thing, and I know, I know you'll love these details. The Mega Mall Tour included a Hercules-themed live stage show, a miniature carousel based on baby Pegasus. There were game booths, an art workshop, and there was also a baby Pegasus playland aimed at toddlers. And, and one visitor in each city that the tour went to would win a Chevy Venture minivan. Ooh. By the way, you also got a cassette of Zero to Hero. That was literally the takeaway. They handed you a cassette and you could carry it out of your car, put it in, and listen to Zero to Hero. Uh, now, to compare this to what Scott Clay describes as the elemental experience. Okay, so he goes on to say, this was set up in the main atrium space in the center of the mall. It wasn't very large, maybe 30 by 30 foot square. They had a TV set up at the, the line area, playing the trailer on repeat. After a short wait, we were led into the space where they had a photo op just inside of the two main characters, Ember and Wade, seated on a bench, and at each corner of the space was set up with a station for the different elements. One was the water corner, where they were handing out sample cups of water and a photo op with Wade. Second was the earth corner, where they had a photo op of Claude. He's a little rock guy. He, yeah. He's a little rock guy. And he was there with his father in the background, who is an apple tree. There they gave you an apple seed planting kit. Behind the main photo op at the entry, there was a station for air, uh, keyed off of the character Gale where they had two booths set up we could go in and they they blew tickets around you to try to catch uh they had a few free ticket vouchers for the movie along with paper ads you could try to catch and lucky for scott two of his kids were able to grab the ticket voucher which was a free ticket code for fandango up to 20 bucks third corner of the exhibit they had a fire station for ember which taught you how to make the hot coals from the movie which again if you watch the trailer wade eats and and suffers mightily. Uh, so these were kits where you got crushed up Oreos in a bag, you added thick chocolate syrup, and then coated them with a pan of chocolate powder and then added sugar crystals on top. And they were quite sugary and tasty, and for a diabetic like myself, that ain't happening. Final corner, they had a drawing station that played a, on a TV loop, different animators doing quick drawing tutorials of the main characters. My kids drew both Wade and Gale in about five minutes total. And, and as Scott said, that summed up the whole thing. I, I believe we were in there for maybe 15, 20 minutes. So you could win Fandango tickets rather than uh, a Chevrolet minivan. But I, I'm betting a lot more people go home from the Pixar Elemental experience with vouchers they can cash in for Fandango than, than went home with minivans back in 97. Speaking of which, just a reminder, this coming Saturday, June 10th, 
Mall Tour begins a three-day stand at the Americana at Brand in L.A., and after that, the Elemental uh, Experience travels to the Hillsdale Shopping Center in San Francisco, where after another three-day stand, this mall tour comes to a close on June 18th, and the day the Elemental Experience starts its stint at the Hillsdale Shopping Center, and again, that's June 16th, is the exact same day this Peter Somm movie opens in theaters. What did you think of the photos? It's a mall tour. I mean, it's just, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of, it it was sort of impressive and sort of sad. I will say that the photos, it was just the family was only, the only people in this Mm -hmm. uh, thing. It was not, it it was not like there were lines around the block. No, uh, no. And I'm hesitant to get into the whole elemental box office projection because what was kind of interesting is you you saw the reviews that came out on the heel of Khan. They weren't effusive, let's say. There that. you go. There you go. And I I really want this to work. So do us a favor, folks. Go to the theaters on June 16th. I'm, I'm just saying. Speaking of things that I, I want to work, have you heard about this Taz Quest for Burger thing that's coming out on digital from Warner's home, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery Home Entertainment? No, Jim, what what are you talking about? A press release came in uh, the other day, and this is an original feature film that is it, it's it's by Ryan Kramer. Uh, gotta warn you up front, it is not done in the classic Looney Tunes style. It's a more stylized take on the Tasmanian Devil, but the, the, the short clips that they shared were actually funny. Logline to the film is, after an outlaw abducts her father and steals the town's food supply, a feisty adolescent bandicoot called Quinn recruits the Tasmanian devil to help her find the thief. Taz may be an ill-tempered rogue with a fearsome reputation, but he and Quinn have to work together to track the criminal down through the wilds of Tasmania and save her community. I can't find anything out there about a physical dvd or blu-ray for this this is strictly coming out from warner brothers discovery home entertainment on digital on june 6th speaking of physical blu-rays i have to tell you folks my search continues for uh strange world i've been to both of my local targets and scoured i told you jim that if the well if you want the 4k it's only available on the movie club i am such a luddite Given what just happened over at Disney Plus with how many titles just sort of fell out of the inventory over there, this actually makes me feel good about the notion of I want to own a physical copy of this that I have in my own home. Because, I mean, for example, if people hadn't raised a stink, Howard, that wonderful documentary about Howard Ashman, would have, you know, fallen off of the inventory over there. I hope you watched... Uh, Wolfgang, which was also excellent, because that's gone. Life is a buffet, and sometimes you pass on. All right. Further side note about Disney Home Entertainment. Have you seen this recent repackaging, rebranding effort that Disney's done with all of their animated library titles? The, like, silvery cover for the 100th? There we go. Yeah. Okay. Saw this in Target, called a friend at Disney, and they explained, yeah, it's, it is sort of for the 100th, but it's also coming off of our own research. And what's kind of interesting is that prior to this, traditionally what was done for the cover of a Blu-ray or a DVD, it, was, it would be some variation on the poster art. 
uh, unless, of course, you know, the film bombed in theaters and then, you know, they would redo the art for the, for the front of it with the notion of, okay, something different to sell this film. And what the folks at Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment discovered over time was that because everybody was doing that, you know, and if you had a number of animated features sitting in an end cap and typically what they do is they put the DVD and then they next to the, the Blu-ray DVD with the digital copy and then, the, like you said, the 4K. There was a lot of vis uh, visual confusion and consumers weren't making the impulse buys that Disney wanted. So now each of these films now has one character on the cover. And again, as you mentioned, it's got the silver tone for the 100th anniversary. But now when you're 20 feet away from the end cab, you know exactly what film is being sold because it's like, okay, you know, it's the Jungle Book and it's got Baloo on it or it's 101 Dalmatians, it's got Pongo on it. But it's also, it's the entire Disney catalog So, or, or for animation. So, for example, there's Frozen and Frozen 2 and one has Anna and the other has Elsa. But yeah, that, that they're hoping on the other side of the 100th that if these sell the way they hope they will, Disney going forward, this will be how they market uh, their animated features, at least when it comes to Blu-ray and DVD. Did you have you seen any of them out in the wild or or I haven't. I was just looking at the uh, they have them all on the Best Buy mm -hmm. website. Oh. So I was just uh, checking. I was doing a little whatever the digital version of uh, window shopping. Is. Oh, well, Should, there we go. Not actually. There we go. Not I actually purchasing. OK. They, it's also how many times can we own the same five animated? I, movies? I know. I know. That's why I at least I show some restraint there. But on the other hand, I feel like when a title shows up on Blu-ray, you know, it's like, okay, grab it, have it. And how many times do we have the, what, we have a film on VHS that has features? Well, first of all, we have no way to show it on VHS because who has a working VHS machine anymore? Only Quentin Tarantino. There we I go. At this point. There we go. Yeah. But it makes me crazy when there are extra features that were done only for a VHS or an earlier iteration of a DVD, you know, that didn't make it to the Blu-ray. And, and the, just this whole notion of when you're someone like you and I, where, you know, you'll build an entire story out of, you know, some weird little anecdote that somebody shares in an extra feature. And it's like, I know yep. that story. I know that interview is on the VHS, which I can't play. Yeah, that's that's why I have every, yeah, I keep every iteration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, yeah, you're right. Things don't port over or one has one thing and one has the other. And it's just it's a nightmare. It is. It is. So anyway, folks, speaking of marketing, when Drew and I get back from this break, we're going to discuss a variety of topics related to Disney's new live action uh, version of Little Mermaid, including how much the mouse reportedly spent to promote this Rob Marshall movie worldwide. Before we get started uh, talking about Disney's new live-action version of Little Mermaid, a couple of quick items. Uh, Drew, you, you wanted to talk about the, the new Ninja Turtles trailer, right? Yeah. Did you Have you seen it, I have. It, it, I have seen that it's in my mail. I was busy putting together uh, the show tonight. It was like, I, I got to watch that. I got to watch it before I talk to Drew, and, and then I didn't. So is it good? Oh, it's a, it's an absolute delight. I think this movie is going to be really awesome. Uh, it's obviously directed by Jeff Rowe, mm -hmm. 
who we know as the co-writer and co-director of The Mitchells vs. the Machines mm-hmm. and were fans of his work on Gravity Falls. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it just looks absolutely beautiful. And the animation by Mikros Animation and Cinecite is just uh, really stunning based on Jeff's doodles of the turtles from his <laughs> middle school sketchbook. I love that. I mean, I, I, how good is I that? I know, I love that. I absolutely love that. And again, remind folks our release date for this thing. It actually got moved up, Jim. I, what I have heard is that wow. uh, the studio mm. loves this movie. Um, so it is going to be open on August 2nd and not August 4th. So, mm. okay, Jim, I assume that next time you go to Target, you will be uh, assaulted by the amount of merchandise uh, connected <laughs> to this movie. But, uh, yeah, it stars Hannibal Burris, Rose Byrne, John Cena, Jackie Chan, Ice Cube. I mean, come on. This is going to be this is gonna be awesome. And I don't know. It just it sounds like so much fun. And all right. I promise. I finish here. We'll go search to the trailer. Oh, other stuff, folks, to be aware of coming down the pike. This coming weekend, Studio Ghibli Fest 2023 has a screening of Hayao Miyazaki's Kiki's Delivery Service. And uh, what I love about the folks at Fathom Events is that they give us animation fans options. On this coming Sunday, June 11th, between 4 and 7, or excuse me, at 4 and at 7 p.m., you can see the English dub version of this Miyazaki classic. And then on Monday, June 12th at 7 p.m., and then again on Wednesday, June 14th, also at 7 p.m., you can see the original Japanese version with the English subtitles. And do we know if the English dub is the one from 1990 where I want to say a Lisa Michelson voices the title character, or if it's the Disney produced version from 97 where it was Kirsten Dunst, right? Yeah. I love the version from 97 largely because of Phil Hartman's work as Gigi the Black Cat. I will say that they recently showed the, a dubbed version of Porco Rosso at the new Bev, and it was the it was the Disney one with uh, Michael Keaton. Okay, all right. As Porco Rosso. Okay, so that that suggests okay, it'll be the ninety seven. All right, cool, cool, cool. Speaking of things that I love, I I was a huge fan of the Peanuts comic strip when I was growing up. Likewise, all of the various Peanuts animated series. And look, everybody talks about the Charlie Brown Christmas, which debuted on CBS back December 9th, nineteen sixty five, but. When almost no one talks about the animated special that debuted on that very same network just six months later. And that was the Charlie Brown All-Stars. That TV special, also directed by Bill Melendez, also written by Charles Schultz, first aired on CBS 57 years ago this week on June 8th, 1966. Later this week on Friday, June 9th, the Snoopy Show starts its third season on Apple TV+. Plus. And hey, have you seen this yet, Drew? I haven't watched any of the new Snoopy Show, so Jim, here's your chance to tell me okay. how wrong I am. Well, no, no, no. It's the folks at Wild Brain who are, have been handling the animation. They are very respectful of what Bill Melendez and his team of uh, and again, a lot of old Disney folks and a lot of old Warner folks did for these Peanuts animated specials back in the 60s and the 70s. The animation is just a little bit better. The the, the wild brain folks want to be respectful of the source material, but at the same time, it's just a little bit better. It's definitely worth checking out. 
So now we've stalled long enough, Drew. It, it's time now to talk about live action Little Mermaid, which did okay domestically over its opening weekend. Uh, what, 95.5 million? First three, okay, if we're counting the Thursday night screenings, three and a half days. Uh, still chugging along at the box office. I, I was just over at Box Office Mojo, and they show, as of, I want to say, Tuesday of this week, it had made $130 million in North America. But overseas, it's a different story. It's sitting at 78 right now, which, judging by the articles that are out in the trades right now, is concerning. What are you hearing? Yeah, it's it's not Aladdin, Jim, is what I am hearing. Okay. Uh, which, if you remember, mm. the overseas box office carried that movie to over a billion. It did. Korea, I think, was like a very big mm-hmm. market for that. But yeah, this the the number looks good, mm. except that when you factor in that it was a holiday weekend mm. and it is literally the only thing mm-hmm. basically since Mario Brothers that is for kids and families, it's not a great number. And it's I've heard that it's going to struggle to break even at this point. Part of the problem here is... This film was so much more expensive than I think Disney ever anticipated. I mean, remember, they did that flyover of Pinewood Studios, and we actually got to see Eric Ship sitting out on, on you know, a couple of other sets were, were outside of the sound stages because... Yes. That wasn't you, Bio-Reconstruct, was it? I mean... You know, <laughs> but again, they were finishing the sets in March of 2020. They were going to get serious about shooting, I want to say, April 1st, and then, of course, the pandemic. They didn't actually begin shooting till what nine months later january of of 2021 and then it was a a six-month shoot with all of the covid protocols in place which also bumped up what the the overall cost of this film was so disney's been carrying this movie on the books for almost two years now and you know well you know at at the premiere rob marshall said that he began working on it five years ago God. So that's a lot of people employed for five years. Yeah, and, and the number I've been hearing is $250 million. And then there was $80 million spent just in North America on promotion. Uh, supposedly an additional $80 million uh, spent worldwide to position this film. So that's a lot of startup cost. But at the same time, the other thing... A Disney has different revenue streams than a lot of the other companies can count on. Like, for example, you were talking about Target. I was just in Target the other day, and you went to the store. You walk by the Pride display, and 20 feet up the aisle is the Little Mermaid stuff, which uh, pillows, blankets, backpack, toys, costumes, clothing. In fact, clothing, they have a separate line of clothes for Target that was done by Colleen Atwood, who did the costumes for The Little Mermaid. I mean, literally, there's a display explaining that these are inspired by the work of of Colleen Atwood, you know, who did the costumes for The Little Mermaid. And speaking of Colleen's work for the, the actual film, out ahead of the theatrical release, Atwood was asked by Harper's Bazaar about one item in The Little Mermaid's wardrobe that didn't transition from the animated film to the live action film. And 
and that's Ariel's seashell bra. Did you hear? Did you hear the story about this? No, I didn't. I, I was wondering what happened. There. Okay, well, uh, Colleen said we walked away from that one. I think we wanted to have a more fish-like quality to the girls, and having them plunk seashells on their breasts seemed like a weird way to go. And when you start putting shells on real bodies, it's it's hard to make them look good. Believe me. So we went with a bralette that still had a fish vibe, but wasn't as aggressive as a shell bra. And speaking of making Ariel and her sisters look more fish-like, there's the tail that Colleen also designed for, for Holly Berry, which, by the way, goes all the way up to Holly's chest and all the way down to her legs. And this comes from an interview that, that Atwood did with Variety. And she said, we made it to scale. And it's like, she, uh, did Colleen just make a dad joke? Uh, like fish, uh, never mind. Okay, and they 3D silk screened the tail and painted it on. So you got the nuances of color and we used all sorts of layers of sheer material, which, which gave the tail and the scales an iridescent effect and lots of good work. But again, uh, to pivot back to The Mermaid's surprisingly low uh, box office numbers overseas. So, so what's going on here, Drew? If you look at places that... IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes or that sort of thing, they're actually changing the way that they they list those things due to a weird series of, of review bombing. Yeah, I saw that IMDb like suspended the ability to review, I believe, because of this. Mermaid hasn't opened in all territories overseas yet. I mean, there's still a, a number of major markets to go into, but how much of this do you think is racism? I think that's a big part of it. Mm. I really do. And I don't know why people are so weird, but uh, it's distressing for sure. We've seen it with Black Panther and, and other other things. We have. So, we have. And, and, yeah. But what's kind of interesting is, I, I do you know the actress Stephanie Mills? She's the one who played the role of Dorothy in The Wiz, the, the 1974 Broadway musical, which reimagined L. Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz as a musical for the stage told with an all-black cast. She recently took to social media to talk about what she dealt with back then and to, to offer up her sympathies to Halle Bailey. And what Mills said was, as a young black girl playing the role of Dorothy, I know what Halle Bailey has been dealing with. I got so much hate mail. I was told that Judy Garland is turning over in her grave, all because a little black girl was playing a part that was once played by a little white girl. And that's 1974. This is 2023, almost 50 years later. You'd think we would have evolved past this nonsense, but no. Quick little side story here. The Wiz, by the way, is being revived for Broadway next season. And after a, a pre-Broadway tour, It'll reportedly take up residence in the Majestic Theater, which was home to Phantom of the Opera more than for 35 years. A New York production of this Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber show closed back in April of this year. And as long as we're telling Little Mermaid related stories here, back in January of 2007, when Disney's stage version of Little Mermaid opened at the Lundfontein Theater, Sarah Boggess, who was white, played Ariel while Norm Lewis, who is black, played King Triton, Ariel's dad, and no one said boo. Jump ahead seven years. May of 2014, Norm Lewis becomes the first African-American actor to play the title role in the Broadway company of Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber's 
Phantom of the Opera. So who plays Christine to Norm Zarek? It's Sarah Boggess again. They played father and daughter in The Little Mermaid, and then they played star-crossed lovers in, in Phantom of the Opera. Again, nobody said boo to this, this bit of colorblind casting back then. Whereas it's now 2023, where, Drew, it just seems like there's people who get up in the morning and they look out in the world and tell themselves, what can I be offended by today? <laughs> to bring this full circle, did you see what Marcus Ryder the blog post he put up just in the past couple of days, the, the one that's titled Disney's Little Mermaid, Caribbean Slavery, and Telling the Truth to Children. I saw I saw the bullet point, but who, who is this guy anyway? He's a, a want-to-be social influencer who, with this post, puts the premise out there and says, I do not think we do our children any favors by pretending that slavery doesn't exist. And so what does this have to do with Disney's live-action version of The Little Mermaid? So Marcus went to go see this Rob Marshall movie with his six-year-old son. And near as Mr. Ryder can tell, Disney's new live-action version of The Little Mermaid is, seems to be set in the Caribbean of the 18th century, which is when, in the real world, the slave trade would have been operating at, at full steam. And to Marcus's way of thinking... Boatloads of proud Africans in chains were headed to the Americas, and they would have been passing right overhead as Ariel and Sebastian were performing under the sea. So he thinks that should have concerned Ariel because in Disney's live-action version of Little Mermaid, the title character is played by Halle Berry, an African-American actress. Okay, Drew, never mind that mermaids don't actually exist. I, I'm sorry if that's a spoiler. But Marcus Ryder is determined to make a politically correct point here, which why he then goes on to say, setting this fantastical story in this time and place is literally the equivalent of setting a love story between Jew and Gentile in 1940s Germany and ignoring the Jewish Holocaust. <laughs> I'll buy that Ursula's big number in The Little Mermaid, Poor Unfortunate Souls, is, is a tribute of sorts to the songs of Kurt Wilde the guy who wrote the Three Penny Opera. <laughs> but I think it's a real stretch to try to even make an indirect connection between the live-action remake of a Disney animated film from the late 1980s and the Holocaust, which reminds me, there's that line that I love from the, the, the theme song for Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's like, if you, you wonder how Joel eats and breeds and other science facts... Just repeat yourself. <laughs> it's just a show. I should really just relax. So wise words from Joel Hodgson and Josh Weinstein, who they, they wrote the lyrics to that song together. Just repeat yourself. It's just a show. I should really just relax. Uh, one final bit of mermaid-related news here. If, uh, as we've been saying over the past couple of months, DreamWorks Animation has been planning on capitalizing on Disney's new live-action version of Little Mermaid to leverage promotion of its own Ruby Gilman, a teenage kraken. And just over the, the past couple of days, lots more clips, more peeks into the world of Kirk D'Amico film. Uh, we even have an official description. Do you want to share this with a class, Drew? Or? Sure, I will. Okay. okay. So, 
Sometimes the hero you are meant to be lies beneath the surface. This summer, DreamWorks Animation dives into the turbulent waters of high school with a hilarious, heartfelt action comedy about a shy teenager who discovers that she's part of a legendary royal lineage of mythical sea krakens and that her destiny in the depths of the oceans is bigger than she ever dreamed. Sweet, awkward 16-year-old Ruby Gelman is desperate to fit in at Oceanside High, but she mostly just feels invisible. She's math-tutoring her skater boy crush, who only seems to admire her for her fractals, and she's prevented from hanging out with the cool kids at the beach because her overprotective supermom has forbade Ruby from ever getting in the water. But when she breaks her mom's number one rule, Ruby will discover that she is a direct descendant of the warrior Kraken Queens and is destined to inherit the throne from her commanding grandmother, the warrior queen of the seven seas. The Kraken are sworn to protect the oceans of the world against the vain, power-hungry mermaids who have been battling with the Kraken for eons. There's one major and immediate problem with that. The school's beautiful, popular new girl just happens to be a mermaid. Ruby will ultimately need to embrace who she is and go big to protect those she loves most. And you had mentioned that you had seen some more of... of I've seen a little bit of Ruby Kraken. And? Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. I don't know if I can say anything, but I just think that this movie looks a lot... Like a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. The art style is amazing. It's great to have another... Uh, movie from Kirk D'Amico mm-hmm. so soon after Vivo, which I know that you and I both enjoyed. Yeah, Jim. yeah. I think it's going to be a little sleeper. I think it's going to be really, really good. And um, yeah, I'm excited about it. Every time I see additional footage and, and new clips and the like from this, it, this is more and more something I'm really looking forward to. But that said, I, I do hope that the people who are upset that Ariel is black in Disney's live-action Little Mermaid don't notice that Ruby Gilman's crush, the, the skater boy that she's math tutoring, the teen with the sweet face and the, the giant fro, he's also black, you know, because... Then think of of the hard choice they're going to have to make. Which family-friendly film from the summer of 2003 is going to be the most upsetting for them? (laughs) You know, Jim, it sounds like they're a bunch of snowflakes to me. Okay. Well, anyway, all right. I'm going to get off my Little Mermaid soapbox now so I can then get up on my Light the Fuse podcast soapbox. Because, uh, you know, uh, look, folks, if you're not listening to Drew's Light the Fuse podcast, folks, you are missing out on some truly amazing stories. Mr. Taylor, and as I mentioned earlier, his equally talented co-host, Charles Hood, take you behind the scenes. Well, not just on uh, the Mission Impossible movies, but also the ever-growing world of John Wick. Did you see development on, on John Wick 5? How? 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 I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, is, is there a... <laughs> Is there a seance or something I, I, that's going on? I'm not really I, sure. Same thing here. Yeah. Okay. Also, Top Gun and, and its it sequel, Top Gun Maverick. All right. So you're finishing up a, a, a fun series over uh, on Light the Fuse right now, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, we're finishing up a lot over on Light the Fuse. We're, <laughs> we are, we're finishing up uh, Brian Burke uh, this week and then... Yeah, and then we're going quiet for a little while. I can't really talk about it yet, but we will be back. Um, I think I can safely say that. Don't worry. Don't delete us from your RSS feed. We will be back. Um, and that's all I can say for now, but very exciting. Jim, you know what's what's going on, so you know that it's very exciting. 
given the, the world of of Mission Impossible, I I love that you, you you're going undercover. We're go yeah we're on the run. There we go. <laughs> yeah, we're finally uh, the Paramount Legal is finally after us for uh, copyright infringement, and uh, we've got to go underground, um, disavowed. Uh -oh. We have been so yeah. Folks, trust me, when they resurface, this is going to be cool. And not nearly as cool It's the stuff we have here. I mean, we have a couple other podcasts we'd like you to check out. We, of course, have Disney Dish that I do with Lentesta. Likewise, we have Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams, who, by the way, also has his own fun new show, uh, 32nd Street. Please check that out. Likewise, uh, looking at Lucasfilm with Brian Gaughan. Uh, Going to try to get a new one of those out the door this weekend, too. Beyond that, social media. Uh, talk to me, Drew. So still on Twitter? Yeah, I'm still on Twitter mm -hmm. and still on Instagram. And I'm very curious. As, you know, Instagram is is unveiling a kind of Twitter. I have heard Twitter this. killer I have, soon. Heard so this. I'm very yeah. interested to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Drew tailored like a tailored shirt mm -hmm. on both. And uh, what about you, Jim? Where can people see your MGM uh, series? <laughs> yeah. Well, we actually wrapped that at the end of May. I'm working on a new series, which uh, hopefully get going in a day or so. Uh, but yeah, uh, on Insta uh, Twitter and Instagram is Jim Hill Media, and on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. Let's see. Beyond that, folks, uh, if you could do Mr. do Mr. Taylor and I a favor, if you get over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, uh, fine tuning, but also light the fuse. Uh, that would be great. Also, if you really, really, really like what you heard here tonight, if you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be cool. And I think for now, that's going to do it. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening. And Mr. Taylor and I will be back soon.